In 2007, a Russian submarine expedition led by the explorer and parliamentarian Arta Chilingarov planted a Russian flag made of rust-proof metal on the seabed four kilometres beneath the North Pole. One did not have to dive nearly so deep in search of the subtext. Russia was staking its claim on the Arctic. Russia was not and is not alone. The melting of the polar cap occasioned by climate change is accelerating strategic positioning in the high north. For access to resources long buried beneath the permafrost, to new shipping lanes once blocked by ice, to opportunities to menace rival powers. This week, NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg declared that the Arctic was of great strategic importance to NATO and that the alliance urgently needed to increase its Arctic footprint. Though Ukraine is far from the Arctic, Russia's invasion of it has altered the picture significantly. Russia is presently chair of the Arctic Council. In March, every other member announced that they would cease attending meetings. If and when the Arctic Council does resume full operations, Russia will also discover that, as a consequence of its assault on Ukraine, it is now the only member, not also a member of NATO. How much busier could the Arctic get? Can there be competition without conflict? And how will all this affect the people who live there? This is The Foreign Desk. The High North is strategically important for the Euro-Atlantic security. When Finland and Sweden joins NATO, seven out of eight Arctic nations will be NATO members. The shortest path to North America for Russian missiles and bombers would be over the North Pole. We and our partners have kept the sea lanes open and secure to ensure we can share peacefully in the natural bounty of the sea. But as you know, increasingly, we're seeing those rules challenged, both by the rapid advance of technology and the disruptive actions of nations like China and Russia. It's of vital interest to America's foreign policy to secure unimpeded flow of global commerce. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined, first of all, from Reykjavik by Caroline Kennedy-Pipe, Professor of War Studies at Loughborough University, and also from Tahoe City, California, by Malta Humpert, Founder and Senior Fellow at the Arctic Institute. Caroline, I'll start with you. As things are now, how clearly delineated is who controls what in the Arctic? It's very difficult. So the eight Arctic states all claim primacy and that has been enshrined since the 1990s. And there are some arguments, of course, between America and Canada about the Northwest Passage, but they all claim their EEZs. The thorny issue between the West and Russia is about navigating freedom of seas, navigating these routes across the Arctic. And then there are the hot points, places like Svalbard, which is, of course, under Norwegian jurisdiction, but that is highly contested because of the Svalbard Treaty. So parts of the Arctic, it's quite clear. Other parts, um, there are contestations. The Northern Sea Route would be one where only recently the Americans have said that they refuse to see dominance of that particular route to Russia, which, of course, charges tolls for passage across that very important archery along its northern coast. 
Malta, to bring you in, if we think about the, I guess, near future, the next 10 to 20 years, is there a clear idea of how much the Arctic is likely to change in terms of those resources becoming available, those shipping lanes opening up? Yeah, it's a very good question. And it's seems like that equation keeps changing. I remember about a decade, 15 years ago, you know, talk about the Arctic opening up really started. The conventional wisdom was that the Arctic is warming at twice the rate of the rest of the planet. And then we went to uh, three times the rate of the rest of the planet. And now it's warming at four times the rate of the rest of the planet. So it seems like the changes are happening at an accelerated pace. And a lot of the forecasts that one was able to rely on 10, 20 years ago now seem too pessimistic and the ice is melting at an accelerated rate. And what we're seeing, for example, now along Russia's northern coastline is that vessels even with limited ice class are able to navigate through the Arctic for at least a few months out of the year. I think it's important to understand that even with ice melting, the Arctic remains a challenging environment to navigate in. And we're talking about the Arctic potentially becoming ice-free. We're really focusing on, on those three or four months out of the year from June through September, July through October, when a lot of the ice is gone. There will still be ice during the winter, but at least seasonally, it will become a navigable ocean. And that, of course, brings access to resources, shipping lanes and with that new access and economic interests, of course, come uh, geopolitical changes to the Arctic. Well, indeed so. And those geopolitical changes are unlikely, I think, to be entirely trouble-free. And Caroline, as you're doubtless aware, earlier this year, the United Kingdom's Ministry of Defence released a strategy document. And Ben Wallace, the Secretary of State for Defence in his foreword, said the Arctic has historically been an area of low tension and we wish it to remain so. But how likely is that? So the academic and political debate has always been divided between those who believe that the Arctic is a place of low tension and harmony, as evidenced by the foundation of the Arctic Council in 1996, and those who believe that the Arctic is not a place apart, is not immune from global tensions, and indeed, if anything, the war in Ukraine has shown that the Arctic is not isolated from the trials and tribulations of international politics. Of course, the British position is very clear. We tread a very careful line, and we have done since 2011, in positioning ourselves as a near-Arctic state because of Scotland, but also very keen not to be seen to be intruding on the affairs of the Arctic states themselves. So what Ben Wallace was reiterating was the standard UK line, that this is a place of harmony, this is a place that we wish to see of low tension, but really that sits against the reality of the fact that ever since the Cold War, the Arctic is a nuclear zone, it's a zone of intense nuclear competition, and as we've seen over the last five years, the UK-Greenland-Iceland gap has been a considerable place of toing and froing by the Russians, attempting to interfere with the UK's position across the Atlantic, and even as we've seen today, some mischief-making, stress-testing across the European Arctic. So Ben Wallace, that document has been a, a long time coming, and it was rushed out precisely because of the war in Ukraine to reassure friends and partners 
notably Norway, the Baltics, that the UK will stand shoulder to shoulder in defence terms. Malta, on that note, we should talk about the Arctic Council and the war in Ukraine has had an effect on the Arctic Council, uh, as you'll be aware, because by tremendous mischance, the current president of the Arctic Council is Russia. And as a result of that, nobody else is turning up to meetings until Russia's no longer president. If we assume that there's not going to be any, I guess, decrease of tensions between Russia and the rest of the Arctic Council's members in the near future, is the Arctic Council still actually workable? Yeah, I think that's a question that everyone is you know, asking themselves. How do we transition into cooperation in the Arctic in this new reality with a more hostile Russia? And I mean, one could argue that what we're seeing this year is just, uh, you know, the end of a long transition when it comes to Russia becoming more aggressive. And I think one has to distinguish between more of the high politics that occurs in the Arctic Council with ministerial meetings and the individual working groups. And I think if one is able to maybe separate the headline-grabbing ministerial councils where foreign ministers show up every two years to Arctic Council meetings, which those probably seem less likely to restart. But I think then there's also the cooperation within the individual working groups where a lot of the research related to the environment, climate change, maritime safety is being conducted. And those are probably the areas where long-term established relationships between scientists and experts have been done for the last 20, 25 years. And that's probably an area where one eventually can find ways to continue that important research and work that has been done in the Arctic Council. Just to follow that up, Malta, I think there is a fairly widespread assumption that the Arctic and the Antarctic are perhaps a bit like space. They're somewhere that countries are able to put aside their earthly rivalries to work together in a hostile environment. Is that perhaps a bit of a naive analysis, especially now? Yeah, I think it may be a little naive because in space, at least so far, we don't really have access to resources opening up. If we were at the stage of being at the moon or going to Mars to mine rare minerals, some kind of resource, then I think the Arctic would also quickly transition into a more competitive driven environment, which is that's why what's happening in the Arctic is, is happening. If the Arctic remained a frozen environment, which would be the domain of, of submarines largely, as it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, then we wouldn't really be talking about if there was no importance in terms of shipping routes and uh, potential access to oil and gas or minerals, then I think there would be less potential for tension in the Arctic. And so I think on one hand, that Arctic where the space comparison has some validity, but I think the Arctic has moved beyond that. There's another reason why Russia might, of course, be less inclined to cooperate than it already was, which is the presumed accession of Finland and Sweden to NATO. Does that presumed accession massively alter the security calculus? Will it induce or encourage Russia to behave differently? Yes, this does alter the calculation. The Russians are notoriously sensitive about defence in depth, hence their dislike to put it mildly, of the extension of NATO to the east. This merely deepens their hostility towards the west. And of course, the Russians think of the Arctic in terms of Eurasia, that is a heartland, which extends from Ukraine, this is the link, all the way up into the Russian Arctic. Russia sees Eurasia as positioned between the west and, of course, 
Asia and wishes to situate itself there. But if I can just come back, the space above the Arctic is incredibly crowded. It isn't a place apart. It's riddled with satellites and commercial satellites. And so space in the Arctic is absolutely linked with the commercial and economic cooperations. And of course, states like China, who've been kept out by the Danes of investment in Greenland, where Matty is exactly right, that is where the rich earth ore minerals lie. And so the Chinese have been attempted to use their soft power and to watch from space to see developments in the Arctic. So it's an incredibly complex space, both on the surface, on the sea and in the sky. Malta, at that point, we should talk about China, which, as we were discussing earlier, has declared itself a what it calls a near Arctic state, which is perhaps a bit of a reach if you look at a globe. But it has this idea of a what it calls the polar silk road. Are we entirely clear by what they mean by a polar silk road? What will that look like in practice? Yeah, China has always been very aware, concerned about access to trade routes. The U.S. is very fortunate that it has access to the entire eastern seaboard, the entire Pacific coast. There are very little choke points that the U.S. relies on, and whatever choke points do exist, be it the Panama Canal, the Suez Canal, the U.S. has always been very aware about securing access and having a high seas navy to ensure access to the trade routes. And China is a bit more in a, in a pickle when it comes to trades. A lot of trade goes through the South China Sea, where we're all aware about the potential conflict with Taiwan, through the Straits of Malacca near Singapore. So China has always called this choke point a strategic weakness, um, this Malacca Strait dilemma. And so the Arctic could potential in a long-term scenario become an alternative trade route, where instead of going the traditional route through the Straits of Malacca and the Suez Canal, you have access to trade through the Arctic. And what we've seen over the last decade or so is China sending a number of vessels through the Arctic, mostly from its uh, state-run Costco shipping company, where it's sending different equipment and materials to Europe and from Europe, kind of testing the water, so to speak, seeing what kind of equipment is needed in terms of vessels, what kind of training is needed. And so it is not unrealistic to think that in a 20, 30, 40 year time span, relatively normal shipping will be possible in the Arctic, at least for those three or four months out of the year. And I think that's the idea of integrating Arctic shipping routes into this polar silk route, which will have a railroad component, but also will have a very important uh, sea component going up north through the Bering Strait along the Russian coastline, or even potentially through the center of the Arctic Ocean as the ice continues to melt. And that cuts about 30 to 40 percent distance off between Asia and northern Europe. And Malta, just finally, if it seems inevitable, and it does seem inevitable, that there will be more competition in the Arctic for resources, more competition for trade routes, how concerned are you that that competition won't be able to be undertaken entirely peacefully? I think that equation, you know, have definitely changed over the last over the last six months or so. I think that there's always been the discussion between the securitization of the Arctic and the militarization of the Arctic. And there are those that argue that the developments that are happening in the Arctic, for example, Russia reinvigorating or expanding existing military bases with you know, larger runways, stationing different, you know, aircraft wings in the Arctic 
building more icebreakers, placing weaponry on icebreakers comes from a securitization of the Arctic where there's more economic activity, there's more shipping. And so there's the need to have maritime domain awareness. There's the need to know what is going on in the Arctic, who's traveling along the Northern Sea Route or the Northwest Passage. And then there are those that are saying, no, 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 no. What is going on in the Arctic right now is the beginning of militarization of the Arctic, where you have S-300 and S-400 anti-aircraft missiles being stationed in the Arctic, where you have large over-the-horizon radar installations that can look thousands of miles ahead, where you have Russia you know, really building up those forces. And so where along this kind of scale are we? Are we are we still more towards the securitization of the Arctic or are we moving towards the militarization of the Arctic? And I think one can definitely make a stronger argument now than one could six or 12 months ago, how conflicts outside the Arctic, a general building of tension between the West and Russia and with an unknown factor of China or other emerging powers moving into the Arctic from an economic perspective, from a general interest perspective in the Arctic, how will all that kind of play out? And the hope, of course, is that the Arctic will remain a region of low tension, but can it really stay isolated from larger geopolitical developments in the rest of the world? And that's, uh, I think, one of the great questions of the 21st century. Caroline Kennedy-Pipe and Malta Humpert, thank you both very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24, and for a more detailed look at what NATO's focus on the Arctic might mean in practice, I'm joined now by Dr. Benedetta Berti Alberti, Head of Policy Planning at the Office of the NATO Secretary-General. Benedetta, first of all, let's start by talking about where we are now. What is NATO's current presence in the Arctic like? When you're thinking about NATO and the high north region and the Arctic, you're thinking more about the individual assets of the NATO allies, so the individual countries. And then you're thinking about the alliance working together in terms of intelligence sharing, in terms of situational awareness, in terms of making sure that we together as allies have a clear picture of the threats, of the challenges, of the security dynamics. That's not necessarily about having permanent basing with NATO flags. So when Jen Stoltenberg talks about making the Arctic more of a priority, what does he want to add or what does he want to change? What does he think NATO needs to do? So I think very rightly the Secretary General has said the high north, the Arctic region matters to your Atlantic security and it's going to matter even more in the future. And this is true because of climate change, because we know that it's going to have direct implications on the Arctic. And we know that new shipping routes are going to be open. We know that geopolitical strategic competition is going to heat up in that part of the world. So that's one reason why we need to pay more attention. The Secretary General also added that in recent years, we've seen Moscow's increased attention and militarization reopening old Soviet-era military bases, using the Arctic to station and test new weapon systems. And then, of course, we also see China thinking much more carefully about its role as a near Arctic state, as it calls itself, also in terms of developing the right military equipment. So if you take all these issues together, on top of that, you add 
that NATO is going to go from 30 allies to 32 with Finland and Sweden, and of course these are out of space, then the Secretary General Kohl is crystal clear, this region will matter more to our security, it's going to be more contested because of geopolitical competition, and therefore NATO needs to set up level of attention towards the Arctic, its level of exercising, its level of situational awareness. So that's the context in which the Secretary General talks about Arctic security. You mentioned there that presumable accession of Sweden and Finland to NATO, and that makes the Arctic much more obviously a NATO protectorate. Is there a an idea that NATO can marginalize Russia even further in the Arctic specifically? So I wouldn't put it that way. I would just say that traditionally, if you look at the Arctic Council states, and after Sweden and Finland will complete their accession into NATO, six out of seven of the Arctic Council states will be NATO allies. So that's a fact. But traditionally, the approach has always been high north, low tension. The approach has always been to seek cooperation. And those individual countries have, through the Arctic Council, through bilateral engagements, really sought cooperation with Russia throughout the years. So the traditional approach to the Arctic has always been that of seeking cooperation. The preferred way forward is, of course, through cooperation and NATO has a strong interest in stability, security in the high north. So this is not about marginalizing anybody, but it is also true that right now we find our relationship with Russia are the lowest since the end of the Cold War. Right now, there is not a situation of partnership, of course, and because of Russia's war against Ukraine and its aggressive stance, of course, right now, we're not talking about cooperation. But Sweden and Finland joining NATO simply means that the geography of the I-North will matter even more to your Atlantic security. In terms of NATO's position vis-a-vis Russia, I would say that just a few months ago, NATO leaders met in Madrid and agreed a new strategy, a new strategic concept, and that document is quite precise on the view on the Russian Federation. And the Allies have said that today the Russian Federation is the most direct and strategic threat to allied security and to Euro-Atlantic peace and stability. So that's the starting point. That strategic concept you mentioned that NATO outlined in Madrid did also place a huge emphasis on China. I think the first time that NATO had mentioned China in a strategic concept. How does that figure into NATO's plans for the Arctic? Because obviously China has declared itself a near-Arctic country. Is this an arena in which NATO sees China at least as big as, rather, at least as big a challenge as it does Russia? I think the strategic concept, you're very right, it did mention China for the first time in a NATO strategic concept, and it did refer very much to the fact that we see Chinese coercive policy posing systemic challenges to Euro-Atlantic security. And there is a description of some of the actions and behavior, Chinese actions and behavior that we are monitoring closely. And of course, if you look at a world of increased strategic competition, and you look at the high north and the Arctic as an arena in which geopolitical competition may very well play out over access to shipping routes, over access to natural resources, of course, all of these exacerbated about climate change, then, of course, I think it is important to have a complete picture of the developments in the Arctic. And that includes having a look and understanding the Chinese footprint and role. So in that sense, yes, when we talk about situational awareness, that means having a clear picture of all the actors and stakeholders that are 
increasing their ambitions and activities in this important region of the world. Benedetta, thank you for joining us. That was Dr. Benedetta Berti Alberti, Head of Policy Planning at the Office of the NATO Secretary General. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. This is The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. By way of further emphasising NATO's commitment to the Arctic, NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg recently visited Cambridge Bay in Canada's vast northerly territory of Nunavut, one of many remote locations likely to become much more familiar with diplomats, traders, prospectors and soldiers. Joining me now from Cambridge Bay is Mia Otokiak, an Inuit youth mentor for the Ikavik programme and junior technical advisor for the Nunavut Impact Review Board. Mia, first of all, Cambridge Bay is a remote and little visited location. So if you could start by telling us a bit about what it's like, what could we see if we were there now? Yeah, it's very, you know, with Nunavut, there's a lot of mountains, there's a lot of different scenery, but Cambridge Bay is actually very flat. In all of Nunavut, there are no trees, so there's no trees up here. And yeah, it's a community of about just under 2,000 people. And we have a lot of tundra and a lot of terrain. But we also have, you know, you can drive out miles and miles outside of the community because of all the trails that we have around here. So you can get out on the land and it is very beautiful when you do. Now, that terrain and the way it's changing is, of course, the reason that NATO and many other powers are taking an increased interest in it. If, if you reflect on that environment, have you seen it change noticeably in the last few years? Oh, yeah. And especially in the last few years. And I'm very passionate about climate change and and speaking out about it. And I think, honestly, climate change has been happening for a long time. But especially in the last few years is when we've been starting to see a lot more of the changes. The biggest things are permafrost is melting. And so you go out on these trails I was talking about earlier. And, you know, you can go out so far out of the community and the biggest thing you'll see is permafrost melting which is just causing huge craters in the earth the earth is like literally collapsing and you're able to see the actual permafrost and so with the warming weather these last few years it has had a huge toll on the environment and on the land Having said all that, the concerns of NATO about the strategic implications of this sound like they might be the least of your worries. But nevertheless, when a figure like Jen Stoltenberg turns up in Cambridge Bay, the first NATO secretary general to visit Nunavut, how is that received by the local people? I honestly feel a little bit bad because and I can't speak for the whole community because I didn't know who they were (laughs) I didn't know and it was also right around the time where Justin Trudeau it was a big deal and for certain people it was a big deal but I went around and asked a couple people and and they were they were very excited it was something very cool and big to happen in our community because I didn't have that much of an answer so I mean, it does sound like there's going to be an increasing NATO and military presence in in Nunavut and other places in the high north. But as things are now, is the Canadian military generally very visible in Nunavut? Yeah, and I think they have been for a very long time, actually. So I was actually, when I was 12 years old, I joined cadets. I was in cadets for a very long time. There's also the rangers here in Cambridge Bay and all around Nunavut. 
And another big one is is all these dew lines. So those are former military buildings and, you know, the military still does come in and do a lot of work at the dew lines and activities like that. So, yeah, there, there is a strong military presence in Nunavut. But is there ever any tension between the military and the local people? Has Canada's military got better at dealing with Indigenous communities? I think so. And especially in the last few years, and especially with COVID, you know, that took a huge toll on everybody. They weren't able to come up here very much after that. And then now, yeah, even in the last few years, things have changed a lot and they're getting to know the community more. They're doing a lot more, you know, engagement with the community, which wasn't there very often before. So that's nice to see. To go back to where we came in, which was with the changes that are happening to your environment in Nunavut and what that might mean in terms of what NATO might wish to do in order to protect the Western Hemisphere from attacks via Nunavut. When you think about how those changes that we're talking about to your environment might affect your community in coming years, what do people talk about? Do they discuss these things like people coming in to prospect for resources which have now become available about using shipping lanes which weren't there before. Are you kind of worried that life might be about to become a lot busier as well as a lot warmer? Well, with the warmer, with the weather, that's something we totally can't control, right? That's out of our control. The weather has been warming way faster, especially up here in in the Canadian Arctic. We're feeling it at a faster rate. And that's something that we can't really do anything about. But because of a result of that, having increasing shipping, having a lot more people come up and check out a lot of our resources. That's something that we can deal with. And it's a half and half, right? It's, I think we're very happy to have more people, you know, want to come up here, want to learn about our culture and us as people. And then also, you know, they're spending a lot of money in our communities. They're buying crafts, you know, they're spending time in our communities. So I think on that end, It is hard knowing that we're going to have, and we have even in the last couple of years, a huge increase of cruise ships, of tourists, of people coming up into our communities, big ships going through the Northwest Passage when they weren't able to. Um, So it's, like I said, half and a half. You know, it is a little sometimes daunting thinking of all the traffic that we can be getting in the next few years. But on the other hand, it's also, it does very well for our socioeconomics, for our communities, and just for the people in general who are coming here to actually want to learn about us as people, where before, you know, it was just researchers or it was just someone coming up really quickly and they didn't want to learn or try to engage with the community. So now that's happening a lot more and people are actually wanting to learn about us and our cultures and our traditions, which I find very awesome because I love, I love sharing my knowledge. I love sharing my community. So, yeah. Mia Otokiak, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That is it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.